Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're good. I'm Jack Chew, back for another edition of Chewing It Over, another week. We're here weekdays at 12.30 till 1 o'clock. Some folk tune in live, which is lovely. Thank you for doing so. And please do comment if you can hear me okay. I think I'll probably get to about 50 episodes before I'm comfortable enough to not have you affirm that you can hear me and that the signal's all right, etc. Until then, please do let me know if you can hear me loud and clear. And then people then tune in after the fact, wherever they want to find it, be that on YouTube or Facebook or Periscope on Twitter or uh, LinkedIn. But they also can find it on a podcast form if they only want the audio and they don't want to see any of the graphics that we put up and the fancy-ass countdown timer, etc. So they can find that on Spotify and Apple or whatever it is that you know, iTunes. You've got uh, all sorts of podcast players that people find it as well. Thank you for those that are watching and listening. And today we don't have a guest. Uh, we've got probably about half and half, I'd say, at the moment with guests and no guests. And when there's no guest, it means that I riff about uh, whatever I think is topical at the time. And today I'm going to hopefully not go off on one, but certainly get stuck into and potentially a little bit ranty about evidence-informed practice, the balance between experience and anecdote uh, with, with evidence in a, in a research sense, you know, the data, as it's often described, the science as everyone uh, talks about at the moment, supported by the science. Um, so I'm going to be talking a bit about that. And, and it may well be that I, I end up going off on one. But yeah, thank you, Stephanie, for, for letting me know that you can hear me uh, waving emoji. That's all it takes. That, that makes me happy uh, that clearly it's, uh, it's working. It's broadcasting. But yeah, let me remind myself exactly what I called the title of this uh, this episode today because, uh, yeah, there's usually I try and make it three topics and evidence-informed practice, critical reasoning, and why we all can't just get along. Um, and so, yeah, that's going to be what we're talking about. And uh, I will come to explain why I don't think it's feasible that the, the, the answer is, can't everyone just be nice to each other? Sometimes there's some fairly deep-rooted differences of opinion and, and almost heuristics of which people go about, their dispositions, their, their take on fundamental matters. And we talked a bit about that last week, of course, but um, I think it's uh, re very relevant to why people disagree on certain topics. But let me uh, let me talk a little bit about Twitter. I do love I do love Twitter. I'm quite active on there. It's one of the few things that makes me actually type things rather than say things these days. And on Twitter, there's a variety of things that have happened last week and over the weekend that have made me realise that it seems appropriate for me to sort of muse on this topic. And um, and and there's a few tweets I'm going to pull up that that demonstrate that and. They all, they all point to a similar topic, in my opinion. Hopefully you can see this when I pull these up, but uh, the first that you, when you refer a, a patient to physio for greater trochanteric pain syndrome and they get an email back saying, please, can you consider a steroid injection for trochanteric bursitis? And uh, I imagine under that mask, we've here got a GP who's got a special interest in sports and exercise medicine. I think he's got, actually got his consultancy colours, but in this instance, working as a GP, frustrated at the fact that... Uh, that then they've had this this mismanagement, should we say, um, of, of of care, um, and so I'm going to come come on to to that particular example, but also just it's one of them things whereby you know the, a critical assessment of the evidence is one of the reasons why as to you know what is it underneath this story that's frustrating not just for him but for us looking on as as, as therapists rather than medics. Then you had this from our good friend Uzo, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago about rehab basically talking about the fact that because his daughter had an ACJ separation um, and, and so she's got some symptoms coming out of a sling and so he was using tape 
and in, he explains in other tweets about the fact that the mechanism for him uh, wanting to do this reason rationale mainly based on trying to placate her bridge the gap between sling and no sling as she returns to school and he's purposefully baiting uh baiting the empiricists i suppose baiting those that, that often wield um, rcts and he's saying that fundamentally is, is this okay uh, and, and jog on if anyone was to suggest that he's not got high quality evidence but he was just doing it to sort of patch her up a little bit and, and purposefully provocative from him and we'll come to that at pros and cons of that approach of course and then another example that i enjoyed uh, professor chris littlewood who's at manchester metropolitan university now Talking a little bit about hydrodistension for frozen shoulder, become a popular treatment, this a questionable mechanism of action, no research evidence. And he said we want to aspire to introduction of new treatments via high-quality RCTs rather than letting the horse bolt. And then the gift that isn't playing there, of course, of a horse bolting out the traps. And, uh, and so it ended up being sort of several tweets of, of different of different flavors there saying not dissimilar things about the fact that there's different approaches to how we conceive of evidence-based evidence-informed practice and and these are all really thoughtful people that in further tweets sort of unpack their arguments and it's all totally reasonable positions for them to take some of them compatible others you know confrontational to each other not as people but the ideas sometimes don't always feel compatible and that's fine as well but it'd be worth me just saying that that these always seem to, to, to hinge. I mean, less so the, the sort of doctor and the trochanteric bursitis thing. I want to come to that in a little while. That's more of a critical reasoning error. I'll probably bring that back up. But let's just say the other two. The other two tweets there about hydrodistensions and, uh, and the use of, of, of K-tape in this instance. And it's this idea that, that especially when you see Uzo unpack it with more tweets, is that you've got this opportunity for him to... Des describe the fact that there's a certain circumstance in which that that intervention was totally appropriate and felt like the right thing for him to do for his daughter in that moment in time and that the the this real specificity in and around that anecdote is the justification for it it doesn't it doesn't speak to the mechanism it doesn't speak to that it, it just feels that 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 in that moment that feels like all the evidence one needs to to, to do that and then the call uh, to, to account for for that and what he sort of hints at is that the fact that there's people that would would feel that without data he shouldn't be doing that sort of thing and it's this this idea of say population level data or informed data through research study as being the the, the, the font of evidence and the key variable when it comes to thinking about evidence uh, being the thing that without that then you know the, the anecdote is unreliable and it's totally fair fair point is that you know anecdotes are is if we, if we relied on anecdotes then there literally would be nothing off the table uh, if it was only that and so what is the filter and some people feel to um weigh it in as being the the, the key filter needs to be so systematic review and quality rct level evidence and others feel that actually you start with this clinical hunch based on your moment of, of understanding that anecdote and that person's story in such a way that really leaves a lot more on the table and that the, a latter filter might be uh, that they're using the idea of research-based evidence. It, it just depends, and, and different people, different clinicians, different uh, even even groups of them, or sometimes different professions. Even if you were to stereotype, might might go about things differently based on a different level of uh, importance that they they put on what constitutes evidence. And uh, I don't want to sit on the fence here and, and try and infer that. Well, actually, it's just it's any any of which all of the above. You know, I have a, a, a an opinion that that I think 
if you go too far in either of those directions, I think that there's a problem. But it's not just for the sake of balance. It's not for the sake of being in the middle ground on that. It's actually not. I don't think in, in a, on a case-by-case basis, I'm fairly rarely on the middle ground on this. It's just that this comes to a, a broader problem. And one of the things I'm sort of joking about in the title of the description of this this talk today, oh, I've realised I'm, I'm feeling naked. Where's my, where's my little frame thing gone? Oh, there we go. That's better. There we go. Um, so definitely, if you if I've, I've purposely just turned the chat off a second, and um, it's definitely something that um, I do want to uh, get your opinions on. So I'll come back to this. So thank you for those that are commenting. Um, but I'll, I'll come back to it. I just have to turn it off because otherwise I get distracted, and I'll, I'll come back to it in a sec. But please do post your post your views as to whether or not you feel that that's something that uh, that you want to weigh in on the the evidence based practice debate uh, as to how things are balanced. Now. What I want to go on there is, though, is the the problem is that you don't have an ability, I don't think, to to truly get the get to the heart of a problem if you overweight. And this is in the process of analysis. You over if you overweight an anecdote, patient narrative is often what it's described in wider culture, often described as being someone's lived experience. I don't mind any of those titles and they're all somewhat interchangeable. Um, but fundamentally, you over if you overweight that, then really, you know, it's something that it takes for, you know, um, people's personal philosophy to really play for it. That anything can go. If, if that is the only the only show in town is that someone's subjective lived experience and their perception is the only thing that matters. And it doesn't need to map on to wider data, then that that for me chaos ensues, and that, that you just end up having anecdote button heads against anecdote in such a way that no one's really bringing evidence to bear. It feels a bit archaic. But similarly, if if people think that the population level data or the research data, sometimes quite sterile, sometimes lab based, sometimes doesn't isn't appropriately worked up as being pragmatic within a trial um, plan, which good quality trials are. Don't get me wrong, but it's just sometimes they might not be. So the evidence and people wield in numbers rather than recognizing how that maps onto practice and sometimes arguments and news of. Uh, pokes this bear on a regular basis is that sometimes this argument that, that it becomes detached from reality of practice in such a way by people that haven't maybe seen patients in the context of current day uh, for, for a long time. And, and so that's sometimes then that we'll consider an over empirical view. Um, I think is is clumsy too. You really do lose the, the the person in the data, and that's reasonable. But it's something that uh, if you overindulge on either of those things, it's it's rubbish. Not because, as I say, I'm coming through the middle for the sake of balance to try and try and uh, weigh things up, but because you don't get any closer to to the truth, right? You don't you don't actually aspire to understand what is going on with any given individual in any given circumstance, and that. Through the middle of this, you've got this this fraught issue with regards to our experience, right? Our, our, as as a therapist now, right? So, you've got this issue here where um, you know people often describe this sort of three three legged stool in which you've got patient values, you've got the therapist experience, and then you've got the research evidence, and and it's a it's a model that's uh, that's pretty old school now. And you certainly look up Eric Mira's funnel models more appropriate if you look into the MSKR manifesto's discussion around clinical evidence. You know you don't see any real talk of that being just this balanced three stool approach to it it just seems it's dated and it was an opinion piece anyway right it's not something that was codified this isn't human rights law that we've got to bear these in things in mind in equal balance right it was an opinion that can be criticized and i think it's something that's dated and, and naff 
But in a, in a, in a general sense, it's that for me, the, your experience as a clinician needs to be appropriately weighing up the true, underst- you know, what the patient's perception is, what the understood lived experience is as thoroughly as possible. But then also weighing in the fact that that might not be represented well in the data or it could well be that that flies in the face of the data for whatever reason right anyone's given perception about anything is something that can be fraught with inaccuracies doesn't mean it invalidates that being part of what they're feeling you know there's plenty of people that sit in front of us and talk about uh, their perception of their pain being something that's attributable to something that really specific really structural something that we know to be fraught with problems the perception of being unstable for example in an otherwise stable body part is something that's a classic one it's like i don't doubt that that's how they feel but it might be inaccurate when it comes to what we understand of wider data wider science wider understanding of the of the way in which not in a specific trial sense by the way i'm just meaning that we know that it's highly unlikely or we might even sometimes have facts of the matter that to dispute that perception right you feel like it's unstable because it feels unstable not because it is unstable and here's why and we offer a counter narrative hopefully thoughtfully and carefully to understand why that's not but this is not dissimilar in that when we're with a patient and we might be weighing up what they feel with what we feel are more closer to the facts of the matter it doesn't invalidate their experience but when it comes to something like this we're often caught in this trap of of thinking that we can't appropriately balance those things off not in a middle ground sense where everyone's right and everyone's you know it's almost like a relativist position i'm just meaning that we've got to be really careful to not overindulge in one side of that or the other is that if we make if we keep making that mistake and we keep thinking and especially when when someone makes some sort of appeal to empathy where it's like well if you don't if you don't completely validate that perception as being the fact of the matter right so that that individual experience say that patient experience or lived experience whatever you call it patient narrative anecdote you don't completely validate everything about that including their perception of to what's at fault despite sometimes a lack of experience or it being fraught with the internal bias of someone being in pain someone myself who's had many an injury you know you, you you're riddled with your own internal biases that aren't necessarily a problem but they're still worth recognizing and understanding is that if you have to if if one of the solutions is it's it's the right thing to do and the empathetic and caring thing to do to just completely indulge every corner of that anecdote then you're full of shit i just think you're terrible you're a terrible clinician you're going you're regressing back to this idea that there's someone someone who can't get out of a chair and the caring thing to do is then lift them out of the chair you know you know the, the idea of truly careful rehabilitation and training them to be able to get themselves out of a chair the empowerment model of care you're completely going back to you know, well I, 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 you know if, if that same patient for to extend this analogy someone that i, I can't get out of the chair and uh, and, and the, the perception is that that's just what they can't do and therefore you've got to lift them out of the chair and just continue to and just you know validate their experience and their perception despite it being something that's not good for them in the long term but then on the other side of course if you go so far to being i don't recognize your story at all in this data therefore you know i don't know get get out of the room or or clearly there's not there there there's no role or or place for anything that might really specifically speak to why that anecdote is relevant to me in this moment it's something that's just really that is cold right but it doesn't mean that to start to bring data to bear or try and understand something more deep than just an individual or a cluster of lived experiences or patient narratives is something that um, you could argue is less is, is unempathetic and uncaring it's just something that i just think is, is just 
I find it embarrassing, really, if we're going to continue to have those sorts of discussions, if it's one or the other, if it's this ridiculous dichotomy in which that's the caring way and, and anything data-driven or anything that's sort of informed by by a trial data is something that's therefore cold and doesn't get us in, in any which way. It's just if you, don't, if you don't bring those things to bear as part of your analysis and make a thoughtful, individualized response also recognizing the therapist benefits and, and biases that come from choosing certain modalities or styles of practice or the ease of getting getting someone out of the clinic room when you instead of confronting them with something that might be a fact of the matter that they don't that you really believe in but you you feel like it's not going to go down well just don't don't kid yourself and, and, and you're certainly not going to be kidding me to think that those factors aren't at play and it drives me crazy. I'll call this, I call this critical reasoning, this notion of critical thinking meets clinical reasoning, because you can use clinical reasoning, but if you've not got your facts straight, if you've not applied critical thinking to that, then you end up in a situation where you're not, you know, you can reason all you want. You can reason falsehoods, right? It can be a reasonable thing based on mis, you know, misattribution of facts. You know, I often use examples here with, with modalities that get used whereby you can clinically, your clinical reasoning might be fine, but if your critical thinking underneath it isn't smart enough to realize that it's not, something might not be doing what you think it's doing. You know, manual therapy is a good example. I even use orthotics, uh, orthotic devices to sometimes describe this. If you've got a misperception of what you're doing when you do those interventions on a mechanistic level, based on basic tissue physiology and science, et cetera, of the actual mechanics of it, then you're in a situation whereby you might clinically reason appropriately, but in your inference of what you think you're doing in that instance can be wrong. So I call that critical reasoning. Critical thinking meets clinical reasoning. And the reason that I'm going on about that at the moment is because you've got, it's only if you bring it through something like that lens and call it what you will, don't get me wrong, but it's just that it's only if you truly try to understand that it's that, that either of those, I don't know, worldviews, not being appropriately married it's just something that it's just so so clumsy and it's just going to be you're going to be no close no closer to the truth if you try and just read statistics and you're going to be no closer to the truth if you only uh, double down on, on what you perceive to be um you know the lived experience and anecdote and patient narrative in, in, in a sole sense that you're just going to then validate that just it drives me crazy and then pursuit of truth is really is really uh, really close to my heart and i'm really bothered about that and that's one of the things that really frustrates me and so when i see these things where it's sort of talking about how how people go about it the way in which people have these priors these these uh, ways in which they see the world and, and that doesn't necessarily just mean professionally it means that it's not just a case of you know sometimes we're speaking different languages and we need to start offering more of a translation uh to each other in such a way that we can't just keep keep doing that because it's just not we're not going to get anywhere it's just going to be excessively confrontational and, and, and we're not going to understand each other. And so, yeah, thinking about it as being different languages is, is quite an important thing that I'll, I'm often teaching. So let's have a little look at your, your chat function here. It looks like uh, there's a few messages. Sorry if I can't get to them all. Um, but uh, Jenny said, has based changed to informed? Um, I don't think across the board, no. You hear about evidence-based practice more than you hear about evidence-informed practice. But for me, it's just a more appropriate title much like you know, people talk about clinical reasoning more than they would ever talk about critical reasoning in part because i think i coined it um not that i coined evidence informed practice but it's just these are terms terms that i find to be much more appropriate and accurate um to what i'm describing and discussing um and so um so i don't but i don't think it's necessarily appropriate to to say that they that that it's changed in in full um i've noticed that um matt and jenny have then had a uh 
had a back and forth. I don't need to probably weigh in on that necessarily. Let me just have a little read. Well, I can just encourage you all, I suppose, to have a little, a little look at this. They've had a really lovely back and forth uh, between Matt Scarsbrook and Jenny Archer on Facebook. Um, so please do have a look at that if you're interested in how things have sort of developed in conversation over what I've just been talking about. Uh, any other comments, please do bring them in or anything that you want to weigh in on the, based on what I've just been talking about. I think that the uh, the sensible thing that uh, that I'm trying to bring forward is not just the sake of balance for the sake of balance, but to, to start to recognise that that if we don't appropriately understand how everyone's come into the conclusions that they're coming to, if you're making assumptions instead of asking questions, if you're not wanting to try and get to the bottom of what's underneath it. So for example, let's let's think about this again, right? So if if, if you hadn't looked at the, the tweets that followed where you're understanding that, that Uzo's doing this, he, and it's funny because he's poking the bear, you know, he's good for he's good at this. So he's poking the bear with what the original tweet is. But essentially he ends up describing it as being this is a, a mechanism in which he's trying to placate his his daughter who's getting out of a sling and is underconfident and is getting some pain on elevating her arm and then he's using some tape as a, as a means of trying to get her going. And that, you know, I know his daughter, um, I don't know her personally, sorry, but I know she's an active, uh, active lass who, who's uh, uh, injured herself often doing uh, brave and, and wonderful things and will no doubt get back to doing them. And so the argument being that what is some coloured tape uh, going to do that's that's going to really un uncouple that if it gets her back to that a bit sooner then you know that's the the balance of the anecdote um i think um what then goes on from from you know, chris littlewood's example with hydrodistension is that it's when someone's making a claim to mechanism that people sometimes get more sensitive and i do as well so uzo's uzo's getting away with it a little bit with me in fact that he's not then inferring that that tape is then strapping her uh, ACJ down in, in, a, in a meaningful way or that it's making some specially mechanical difference to her. And that is something that's therefore she's going to attribute that she needed something that was going to protect her uh, in that way, in a, in a meaningful way that might make her want to crave that in the future or perceive her body to need those sorts of accessories in order for her to be active. If he was making those claims, he'd have me um, poking him a bit more. Um, but then what Chris is doing is making a really good point about something like hydrodistension, which is a high volume injection into an adhesive capsule of the shoulder in which it's then inferred that then putting high volume in at a strain point would then stretch the capsule. Now, what we understand as being the a fibrose capsule and the forces required for that, as well as the fact that I think Marcus Bateman made a brilliant point about path of least resistance being that you know, if you put high volume uh, injection into that area, since before it was to stretch such a tight fibrose capsule, it was just going to leak out where it could in such a way that it's highly unlikely that the mechanism that's being described is going to make a difference. But then people put steroid in sometimes into these high volume injections and stuff. And so the mechanism is, is fraught with challenges. And so Chris is absolutely right to say that things... You know, how far should things go into standard practice when they're medically experimental and the mechanism is it's not just dubious, but so unlikely. And so it's a totally appropriate thing. But then equally, what he then goes on to say about high quality RCT needing to lead the way rather than it sometimes being that you've then got a, a personal circumstance in which you're treating a patient in which you're using an intervention innovatively and specifically based on a whole number of factors that can then sometimes lead to 
that's sometimes how innovations can occur. And in the more interventional space, I think we should be safer. And I think Chris is probably, you know, making that case with regards to injections and, and invasive procedures and surgery, etc. This certainly should be far less experimenting going on than it is with um, sort of the, the dosage of exercise, manual therapy, taping, other low, uh, you know, low risk interventions that can be where more experiment can occur. But on a specific level, you may well find that that does not uh, get married up in this statistical data, which bothers some people. So uh, to come back to, to come back to this point, which was a really interesting one, is that whilst we're making some of it, whilst we're not speaking the same language, and whilst some people are, as this doctor who's referring in, is making a sensible, evidence-informed decision to uh, refer someone to physio for GTPS, totally appropriate, and that was ex hopefully expecting them to be managed and, and symptom modified and loaded in certain ways and, and, and at least have a course of care over the course of weeks. Uh, instead, within a week, apparently, it's then bounced back to him for an injection for trochanteric bursitis, a dated term, but also something, I mean, the speed of which that's referred back sounds like it's fairly rare. You know, I don't hear about that that often. But the mismanagement that can occur when people are just speaking different languages, this guy's being sensible in knowing the guidance and guidelines for what he should be doing when he uh, diagnoses this in general practice, sends it in for some rehab, and then it comes back for an interventional procedure, which, of course, he could have done straight out the gates, but knows he shouldn't do as first instance. And it's such that if you don't get that balance right and you don't speak the same language and we're not better educating people on the evidence as it, as it comes and we're not recognizing how that fits within a patient's story, then we're all going to be making those, uh, those faces uh, underneath our masks at the moment where we're just going to be sort of blank stares and just frustrated at each other because we're just not managing to, to sing from the same hymn sheet. And that, that unwarranted variation, as we often talk about it, is, is fraught with challenges. But the reason I say we can't just all get along and it's unlikely that we're going to suddenly be able to do that is in part because we're talking past each other uh, based on some people just have this instinct, this position, They've, they've sort of their value set is in such a way that they want to validate as much as possible, including some of the falsehoods, I would argue, of some, some anecdote in which it's something like, well, who are you to suggest differently? You need to just comply within that, even in a medical framework. And then there's others that feel that the statistics should be where we start and that then essentially recognizing people within that and individualizing it um, would, would only be from you can only individualize within a menu of agreed treatments that meet a certain level of evidence wherever that might be and, and if, if you speak that if you sometimes two people are speaking those those different languages it's incredibly relevant for us to try and find a way for them to to, to find common tongue but also to recognize where that emerges from and understand why personality dispositions amongst people uh, even though it sometimes self-selects within certain quadrants of it for within healthcare professionals. And so sometimes we get away with it and sometimes we don't. But uh, also some people are more well-read than others. Some people are, are, uh, are also uh, more experienced than others. If we don't find a way to sort of uh, try and make sure we can we can negotiate these things appropriately, not just amongst ourselves, but then with patients, then it's just we're not going to make the progress. And it just feels, it feels, I don't know, it feels a bit dramatic for me to say embarrassing, but I am sometimes a little embarrassed at the fact that we sometimes can't move that forward. And I tweeted this morning sarcastically saying, uh, is this going to be a week in which we're all, you know, fawning after anecdote or fawning after RCTs? Uh, and that really we're not going to get anywhere unless we find a way to balance that out. So thank you a lot for, for listening to my ranting and rambling today. And uh, thank you so much for all the comments that are coming in. I've just seen that Joe Turner, our guest from Friday, 
who was brilliant. That was such a good chat. And, and I, I look forward to having more of those with Joe. But she's just posted a lovely comment about respecting experts from all ends of the spectrum, understandably weighted towards expertise. And you think about the way that patients fit within that and the way that they're an expert in their own story. Um, you know, it means that it can, whilst it can be fraught with challenges, it's something that needs to be heard out. But then if it's something that flies in the face of what we come to know and what we understand as experts within a nod to the science, you know, if they're, you know, devoutly um, wanting to attribute all, all of the things for pro and con to their horoscope, for example, if I take a, a, a far out example that I often use, um, then you don't need to invalidate the fact that they feel that way. Um, you don't. You can be sensitive to the fact that that's within their belief system. But if you were to try and comply with that excessively and start to uh, to infer that mechanism, then yeah, you're certainly going going out of bounds, really, of, of what would be ethical healthcare in a, in a, in a sensible, evidence informed environment. So that's enough from me today. I hope that's been uh, worthwhile for for some of you uh, to hear my thoughts on. Please do feel free to challenge, and uh, obviously any any good challenges that come um anything that that you want to to share can be in any format of feedback but it also means that you probably as soon as you're making any good points in that direction then you'll be probably hold in front of the show and get on the show and join me as a co-host to talk about these things again or any points you have of contention especially you know those that those that come on the show are the ones that challenge me most and, and so please do uh, get yourself involved it doesn't mean you have to by the way you can send feedback in any which way but uh, in the meantime, you know, it's something that's important to me that this Chewing It Over show is a discussion amongst us all. And uh, we've got a cracking guest on tomorrow. Speaking of that, Katie Napton, good friend of mine, um, a digital physio, a pioneer in many ways for PhysioFast Online, who now provides services in boots, chemists and things like that, for physiotherapy and MSK. She's an absolutely brilliant thinker. She's weighing in on the discussion around private practice and the way in which we uh, we work and don't work with the uh, private medical insurers and and there's been a controversy around health code starting to charge for it and, and and some of the some of the ways in which the profession is held hostage sometimes by unscrupulous companies so we're going to be talking a little bit about that tomorrow so tune in uh, to for me and katie discussing that not just clinical but some operational stuff in and around private practice but for now that's enough for me i'm out of time thanks as, as much uh, again for everything from everyone commenting and uh, do tune in and then see us this week at 12 30 all right that's enough for me and goodbye for now.